One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. From Decrypt.co, this is the Decrypt Daily, and my name is Matthew Aaron. Today, I invite on Mr. Jameson Lopp to talk some of the biggest stories of 2020. Doing this show for the past couple months, I've spoken on many, many topics, and some of them still kind of elude me. I have spoken to people that either shilled or pumped or colored the news. And it still lifts me with some questions. Well, Jameson is one of those guys I have spoken to probably about over a half dozen times. I've met him in New York City for Consensus. I have videoed with him, and I have spoken with him on already three different podcasts. And I keep reaching out to Jameson, and he keeps talking to me. Well, I don't know why he keeps talking to me, but I keep reaching out to Jameson because he's one of those kind of guys that are just straight shooters. He's going to tell you how it is without any shill, without any FUD, without any color, just this is how it is. And I've asked him about some different topics that I've covered in the past couple months to give me some sort of hmm, grounding, if you will. Here's my conversation with Jameson. Enjoy. Jameson Lab, how you doing, man? Welcome to the show. Not bad. The uh, space always somehow manages to stay exciting. <laughs> that is for damn sure. Look, it's been so exciting that I have a lot to talk to you about today. I- I've been doing this new show for about two and a half months, and it- a lot of things have been coming on my plate. And I'm st- trying to struggle to figure out which way to which way to go, which way to think about some of these things. And you know what? You're a very objective person when it comes to the space. You're never going to be moonshotting coins or shilling any projects. So. I, you're, you're kind of like my my grounding person. <laughs> so it, I, I'm going to ask you about a couple of these questions, a couple of these different news items that have been popping up over the past couple of months. And I just want you to just kind of like, I guess, brain dump your opinions about them. All right. I'll do my best. All right, man. First one, DeFi is the number one, I guess, catchword of 2020 in crypto. DeFi this, DeFi that. Uh, people are just coming up with projects all over the place. It reminds me of a two- 2017 ICO hype market money grab. Am I right with that? And what do you think about DeFi? And what do you think about the current state of DeFi? And do you think it juxtaposes with 2017? I mean, the things change and yet things stay the same, right? I mean, history rhymes. It doesn't necessarily perfectly repeat, but you you tend to see patterns in these things. And one of them is that when we're talking about innovating in the financial space, the truth of the matter is the vast majority of financial products and services are just thinly masquerading types of gambling. You know, you're making bets about different things. And so it it made a lot of sense to me to see the cutting edge innovation, if you will, in various permissionless crypto projects end up tantamount to different types of gambling. Uh, In many cases, what unfortunately seems to happen is that they kind of shove the risks under the hood and hide them in a way so that it's not obvious what the risks actually are. And then people get really excited and it looks like everybody's making money, everybody's getting rich. And then eventually, of course, the risks get revealed, the rugs get pulled out from under people and people's expectations get reset. And we we're going to continue to see these type of hype cycles happen where there's innovation and uh, euphoria. And then eventually people 
have to face reality, you know, technical reality, economic reality, and we drop back down. But somewhere along the way, there has been some interesting new progress made, and then the cycle will eventually repeat. So it's it's more of the same. Uh, it's certainly interesting in terms of making new types of of products and like ability to swap liquidity in different ways and and try to create new exchanges that exist outside of centralized infrastructure you know that that type of progress is certainly interesting but you know it it's par for the course that a lot of these things end up being outright scams and so you know it's risky to play these games do you feel that defi decentralized finance is actually a good idea in general i think that any attempt to try to further distribute power away from centralized entities or small numbers of people is a worthwhile endeavor. So I certainly am in favor of trying to figure out how to reproduce financial services in a way that gets rid of middlemen. Uh, The tricky thing is with a lot of these quote unquote DeFi services, there are still middlemen in there. There are still administrators that can control things, but sometimes it's just made uh, opaque and people don't realize that until it's too late. Speaking of middlemen, the DEX decentralized exchanges were kind of like the holy grail of getting away from or to have security with your coins, not your keys, not your coins. With decentralized exchanges, you can plug your ledger in, trade your crypto as needed, uh, swap it out. And, you know, it, everybody was looking forward to it. You know, DEXs this year have come really into their into the light because of volumes, which kind kind of are fake and bullshit. They are rivaling centralized exchanges when it comes to how much crypto is being flown through them with liquidity and volume. Do you think that the DEX has taken on a life of its own that is outside of what we kind of wanted it to be back back in the day? And it's evolving to be more of that middleman to what we just said about DeFi as a way to either incentivize a certain small number of people and kind of, I guess, again, travel away from what we are really hoping to achieve with the space? Kind of. I mean, some of the issues here are, you know, who is actually developing the code? What level of control or administration do they have over these smart contracts? And then what we've, I think, seen happen more recently is perhaps instead of having just like a single entity or exchange that is behind a uh, decentralized smart contract, there might in fact be a group of insiders that is getting in early, you know, perhaps putting in liquidity, putting in tokens, and uh, it, they end up getting a sort of outsized advantage later down the line. I think there was some kind of fishy stuff going on with uh, some of the recent airdrops, for example, that even though they seem to be done in a way that was trying to skirt around various securities laws, I suspect that the vast majority of the airdrop tokens ended up going to insiders that were essentially part of one logical group. So like I said, uh, (laughs) history doesn't repeat, but it does rhyme. I, I do think that there will continue to be things like this and it's going to 
potentially become harder and harder to discern exactly what is going on. And that's, that's kind of a good thing from a privacy perspective, but it can, um, it can make it trickier for people to figure out, you know, what is a legitimate project and what is actually a scam or if not an outright scam, a project that has been built in a way that is weighted towards uh, basically paying off a, a small group of people. When it comes to centralized versus decentralized exchanges, for me, it's like if I'm going to use a decentral- or centralized exchange, I'm going to look to see if it is um, compliant with certain KYC AML, if it is, um, you know, complying to government regulations within where I live, the United States, to know that I have that security. When it comes to the decentralized exchanges, what do you think are some of the boxes that should be ticked? Um, and I don't even know if that's your opinion about centralized exchanges. You can please, you know, tell me what you think about centralized exchanges as well. But for decentralized exchanges, what do you think are the boxes that should be ticked when looking into which one you should use? Because, I mean, Uniswap, Sushi, whatever new food decentralized exchange that they're going to make, Taco, uh, McDonald's, Big Mac uh, decentralized exchange, whatever they're going to make, make next. What boxes should they be ticking to know that, hey, yeah, I could use this when it was very simple before a decentralized exchange, smart contract, plug in your ledger you go. Now it's very convoluted and complex. What's your criteria? Well, there, there's no hard and fast criteria. What we're really talking about is uh, reputation. You, you could have some criteria that, you know, for centralized actors says, oh, they appear to be complying with local laws and regulators. And I place, you know, some faith in the existing framework. That's not really something that I personally care about. Um, I would and and have before you know used exchanges that were essentially run by anonymous people and they were still centralized but they had built you know up a reputation over many years uh, which made it fairly unlikely that they were just going to exit scam with everyone's money fairly unlikely that they were going to get hacked and lose everything but the the real problem when you're working on the cutting edge and when you're playing around with these smart contracts that are only hours or days old, there is, you just don't have enough time to build reputation there. In many cases, there have not been any good audits of the code. And so regardless of if you're looking at a centralized exchange or decentralized, it's an, it's really a question of, can you understand what they're actually doing or is it just a black box? And when it comes to centralized exchanges, they're generally going to be a black box. And the only thing that you can go by is, you know, how long they've been in business and what really the existing users and community have to say about their own experiences with it. When it comes to using a smart contract that has not been around for very long, you have to scrutinize the code Uh, extremely well. And I think the tricky thing now is that it's not necessarily just like looking at that one smart contract, but also trying to figure out what the ramifications are of that smart contract in the context of the greater ecosystem. Because now we have all of these different type of uh, protocols that are interacting with each other, like on Ethereum and creating much more complexity to the point that I, I can't tell you that I understand a lot of what's going on. I think it would be a full-time job to really understand the uh, intricacies and interactions between the different pieces of running code in the ecosystem now. So 
it, it's like anything else. You have to do your due diligence. And I think the the downside to operating in a really fast moving, innovative environment is that uh, you know people are going to cut corners and they're not going to do the due diligence because they're essentially FOMOing and they're afraid that if they wait too long to do the due diligence, then they will have missed their opportunity to make a lot of money. So it's a risk and reward for you. I, I have fell victim to FOMO once or twice in my crypto career. You say due diligence. If, if Jameson Lop doesn't understand some things, I, I really uh, pity the average consumer coming in to try to do their due diligence. But moving a little bit from decentralized exchanges to centralized exchanges, the indictment of BitMEX uh, the other day was big news. A lot of people are moving their cryptocurrency, well, finally, off the exchange, which they should have anyway. Uh, but you tweeted something about that. And you said, now we get to see if BitMEX's multi-sig setup is nation-state resistant. Uh, my two questions is, what do you think that the BitMEX indictment is going to do for the other centralized crypto exchanges that most people use? I mean, if we're talking about Binance, uh, Kraken, Gemini, Coinbase, maybe they're in different leagues. You can explain that. And second, do you think with that statement, with that tweet, that BitMEX should fight the government for what they're requesting? Yeah. So, you know, these are at, at the very least two different classes of centralized exchanges. I would I would throw Coinbase, Kraken, and Gemini into the, uh, you know, we're going to play by the rules as much as possible and, and actively worry about protecting ourselves legally by you know, working with the regulators in the existing system. Uh, Coinbase and Gemini seem to do that mostly by having you know, really close ties with existing regulators, including you know, New York State and, and whatnot, which is really the most stringent of all the states uh, when it comes to financial services. But uh, Kraken is interesting because they're still they're still kind of aloof. Like they, they didn't take the direct obvious route rather, you know, they've spent a ton of time in Wyoming uh, helping craft new regulations and, and statutes and such that are actually favorable for moving forward as a, a kind of new hybrid business that can operate as a bank, but can all, also operate in the, the crypto sphere. So they're doing an interesting thing, kind of like straddling both worlds, but trying to do, something more innovative on the legal side. Whereas from my understanding, it seems like Binance and BitMEX take more of the approach of, you know, let's do everything that we can to steer clear of all United States regulatory stuff and try to operate, you know, completely outside of that sphere. And it's an interesting tactic, which is, it's risky because, you know, the Team America World Police tends to extend its reach around the entire world. And so it's very hard to steer clear of U.S. policies when it comes to financial stuff. So uh, I would be surprised if we don't see similar type of thing happen to Binance. Um, I know Binance has an American arm, which they perhaps will use as justification that they're complying with the laws there. But, you know, if there's any way for American citizens to use their non-American uh, service, then I, I would expect they're going to have some legal issues eventually. BitMEX is, I would say, a unique case in the sense that, you know, they've only ever actually dealt with Bitcoin. So like they've never touched fiat rails. There, there seems to be a strong argument that 
they shouldn't have to be compliant with a lot of uh, traditional financial regulations. But of course, now various U.S. uh, agencies are coming in and saying, you know what, everything that you're doing is still going to fall under U.S. financial guidelines. So that's going to be a very interesting legal battle to play out. From a technical standpoint, though, what my tweet was referring to uh, seems to have played out pretty well, where I think only one of the three uh, BitMEX founders was in the United States. And there was actually a post that came out just a day or two ago from, um, I think it was Coinmetrics, that was analyzing the use of the multi-sig keys for BitMEX cold storage. And it, it looked like they had made a pretty good job of guessing of like which keys belong to which founder because like during the time period mm-hmm. that uh, Samuel Reed, the CTO, was uh, under custody, uh, that key stopped being used, but the other keys kept being used. And as my understanding is, you know, the other founders are basically on the other side of the world in Hong Kong or who knows where else. So it, uh, it does seem like, uh, at least for now, BitMEX is able to uh, steer clear of at least having their service completely shut down, uh, then you you get into all of the sort of legal intricacies of the relationship between Hong Kong and America, which apparently has soured recently. So that actually might be a good thing for BitMEX if they're looking to continue operating. I'm just going to jump straight into the next question because I have no clue how to segue it. Uh, But Bitcoin's code update that is scheduled to be a really big change. I did not read into that today because that's just dropped today on decrypt. I was just wondering if you could just walk us through what is the changes and why are, why make the changes? Oh, well, I mean, I think the expectation is that the next version of Bitcoin Core should be coming out in December uh, if everything goes to plan. And there's going to be a ton of code changes in that. But what you are referencing, I'm assuming, is the merging of the taproot code. And This is something that has been a long time coming. I think it's been a good two or three years of work, essentially, uh, to try to get this next major change in the Bitcoin protocol. And really, what we're looking to do is, once again, improve the on-chain privacy and scalability of uh, being able to do like more complex Bitcoin transactions. It's... Certainly difficult to describe this simply um, without getting too technical, but the idea is that we're going to be able to leverage a couple of different uh, cryptographic tricks to do more of the computation you know, outside of consensus, outside of the actual blockchain data structure and network itself. And one of the the things that is going to be leveraged is uh, Schnorr signatures, which is essentially a way to do multi-sig in a way that happens off-chain so that anyone who's validating it, it only looks like they're validating a single signature. That is helpful for both the privacy and uh, like amount of on-chain data that you're using because it's just a smaller amount of data, fewer actual like on-chain signatures. That is actually being rolled out in conjunction with this thing called Taproot, which is a new way to use the existing Bitcoin scripting logic, but to construct those scripts 
in a way that you don't have to reveal the entire script when you go to spend. So one of the problems right now with Bitcoin, both privacy and scalability, is that if you are doing something more complex, like say uh, doing a script that requires multiple signatures, maybe it has different time locks uh, built into it, the, the logic and the amount of data that that script takes up grows larger and larger as it becomes more complex. And also when you go to spend it, you have to put the entire script on the blockchain. This is, uh, this is not great. Like even for Casa, for example, we, we provide a multi-signature based wallet. That means that our users are having to spend more in fees for their transactions than people with single signature because it's just more data going on the blockchain. And it also creates a more uniquely identifiable fingerprint, which is not great for privacy. But with Taproot, instead of having to put the entire script on the blockchain, we're actually able to use another cryptographic mechanism called a Merkle tree, which essentially allows you to break up this script into many different logical branches and then you only have to reveal the specific set of logic that you are using when you are going to go spend. So now you can have a potentially infinitely complex set of different possible spending conditions, but you don't have to throw them all on the blockchain when you want to go spend that money. Instead, you can only put in you know, these three or four logical branches that you actually want to use to say, hey... You know, this Bitcoin belongs to me and this is proving that it's a valid spending condition for me to be able to move it now out of this address. So even that was a fairly, I think, complex explanation, but the, the short version is better privacy, better scalability. I'm hoping to see improved things like um, CoinJoin, for example, is one type of mechanism that could potentially um gain improvements from this because now you'll be able to to hide more of the transactions that are or more of these signatures that are happening you know when you're creating these large transactions basically pooling people's money together does this have to anything to do with stale blocks look i don't know what anything about a stale block that was the big news over on around september 30th uh if you could what is a stale block does this upgrade have anything to do with the i guess rare occurrence of two stale blocks so close to each other? And will the hodler, the Bitcoin hodler, the average person have to do anything once this is upgrade, like new wallets, uh, update anything? What do we have to do? Or do we just kind of like just let it roll out and we're, we're good? Yeah. So orphan blocks or stale blocks, if you will, that's a completely uh, separate type of issue. It's more of a like a network propagation of block data uh, problem, which is completely tangential to all of this. Uh, I suspect that was probably like some BitMEX research uh, because they have a, uh, a service that is constantly monitoring that. And the main story behind Orphan Blocks is that over the years, the improvements to the like fast block relay networks uh, that have mostly been done by Matt Corallo have increased the speed at which blocks propagate through the network uh, so much faster that we used to see orphan blocks on basically a daily basis. And now I think we only see them every few weeks. 
So an orphan block just happens when two different miners find a block at almost the same time and they both put their block out onto the network. And that basically results in a, a propagation race throughout the network. And eventually, you know, there only one block can make it into the, the permanent blockchain because every block can only be connected to one previous block. And it, it's, it's a substandard type of thing uh, to happen because you might believe that you know you have a confirmation on your transaction for example but then if that block gets orphaned then it's possible that it is essentially the confirmation gets undone in most situations where that happens recently your your transaction will just get put into a future block pretty soon anyway so it's not something that users really even notice anymore so the you know taproot and associated stuff that's going to be happening with that the address format was actually already rolled out uh, with segwit is the bash 32 style addresses so this will all be quote unquote you know native segwit uh scripting and uh it that's been out for several years and i know there are still a few services that complain and don't allow you to like withdraw to bash 32 addresses but i think it's pretty rare and, and we've already got pretty widespread support at least on the sending side of things um from a a bitcoin wallet or bitcoin service development perspective changing your validation to be able to send or withdraw to new types of addresses is really trivial. It's usually just a few lines of code. On the other hand, changing your logic to construct new types of receive addresses is a lot more work. You have to, you have to basically implement the whole new uh, scripting logic and, and address creation. So that is what tends to roll out a lot slower. And from the user perspective, it'll really depend on how the services do this. So uh, I would expect a lot of wallets will probably end up displaying it as a, a user option of saying like, do you want to you know, enable this type of, of address uh, and you know, switch over to using it? Because that's what I think a lot of wallets did for the SegWit rollout. On the other hand, uh, you know, wallets that are already doing native SegWit and using Bash32 addresses for anything, they could potentially roll this out in a way that the user doesn't even notice and and just uh, you know switch the logic that they're using under the hood because the user is still going to continue seeing the the t same type of address. And you know, as a as a UX uh, focused company, for example, that's certainly the type of thing that we would prefer uh, for us to be able to offer to our users and for most services to do is, you know, we want to keep that friction as low as possible. Like the, you know, a lot of the stuff that we've been talking about today is not really things that I think the average Bitcoin user should need to concern themselves with. So the more of this complexity that we can, you know, keep abstracted away from people, I think the better it is for Bitcoin. Mm, agreed. Agreed. My next question is looking at the recent couple months with, as we just spoke about uh, DeFi and uh, decentralized exchanges, SUSE swap, Uniswap. One thing that we did see through this whole thing, and now that we're talking about Bitcoin update, is that Ethereum is being stressed very much so, and their fees are becoming astronomical. Do you feel that 
one, when do you think that we're going to see a new version of F that can handle what's happening with that protocol, with the network? And two, do you think that the limitations of Ethereum is slowing down the whole industry and maybe uh, hindering it because of maybe because of the lack of usable, cheap, quick infrastructure that makes people kind of take a step back and go, maybe this isn't the future. So that two questions. One, when F 2.0? And do you think that not having an F 2.0 is hindering the growth of this industry? Yeah, I think a lot of people are going to have to do some hard thinking and come to terms with exactly how long it's going to be before the F 2.0 uh, vision is fully realized. I mean, it's going to be years. I, I think Vitalik has mentioned something to that effect recently where, you know, you, uh, this is a multi-stage process that they have laid out. And I've seen so much uh, hype around, oh, you know, F2.0 phase zero is going live soon. And it's like these people don't even understand that there's going to be no user facing consequences to that. It's not going to actually mm. enable any scaling improvements it's only like step one of who knows how many steps uh, it's hard mm. to i can't even you know keep track of it either because i mean the the plans are constantly changing and i'm trying to keep my focus mostly on bitcoin but um i think a more short term plan is we're seeing more people talk about optimistic roll-ups which is it's it's a different type of scaling. I would consider it more of a vertical scaling where you're, you're basically putting more data in the blockchain or just using the blockchain uh, more than it has been before. Uh, you could potentially say it's kind of like SegWit. Uh, this is going to be an ongoing issue, I believe, in any public permissionless popular network. And I, I think it's interesting to look back over the past three or so years, you know, since the end of what I would call the scaling wars to really see what happened. You know, what happened to the networks that prioritized keeping validation costs low at the potential expense of having higher transaction costs? And what happened to the networks that did the opposite and prioritized low transaction costs at the potential expense of high validation cost of the entire network? And really what we've seen is um, all of these networks that have been pitching themselves as being basically free slash really, really cheap to transact have not gained that much adoption. Um, I was actually kind of hoping that some of them would so that we would get to see some like real world stress testing of, of what would happen to these networks. But mm -hmm. I think that, you know, this is a narrative that is being proven false, at least currently and today is that, you know, this cutting edge technology does not really seem to be getting adopted by the people who are extremely price sensitive. Um, I think there are some obvious explanations for that, which is the people who are extremely price sensitive probably have more important things to be doing, like figuring out how to put food on their table and keep a, you know, a roof over their heads. They're not going to be playing around with this, these crazy uh, speculative uh, games that, uh, seem to be attracting more of the 
uh, wealthy, elite, nerdy type, uh, at least currently. And, and that's fine. I mean, that's how technology progresses. It, it gets adopted by wealthier people who have free time and have um, disposable income that they can throw at these things. And that, that has always been the case when it comes to technology. I just think that we're a bit too early to be pitching this technology as like the savior for the third world, for example. I, I do hope that we will get there eventually, but um, I think it's still going to be a number of years. So I don't think that these higher fees are necessarily turning a ton of people off. You know, obviously they're going to be pricing some people out of the system, but this is part of what we're going to have to continue to monitor, you know, in every popular network is the, the trade-offs of, you know, who are we empowering and who are we disenfranchising, you know, as the attributes of the networks continue to fluctuate. My last question is, first, I want to say thank you for your time today, but I want to kind of like get away from crypto for one second and talk about one of your other favorite topics, the United States government. Um, (laughs) What do you think about the upcoming election? I guess in general, uh, but I'm talking more about voting, security, trust, as we are both uh, inside a, well, hopefully trustless uh, system of blockchain and decentralization, we are putting a lot of trust into this next election, November 3rd, when it comes to absentee ballots, mailing, uh, in-person voting, the risks associated with that, and the fact that our two-party system might be doing a kind of, you know, unsavory business on both sides to try to restrict the vote or in one way or the other to maybe one side or the other. What is your opinion on all of that? And do you think that one, we're going to have a, a, an election that could be, that we can trust with results that we can trust? And if not, what do you think could happen on a tech side that we can help push a trustless system through uh, for the US government to conduct elections in the future? Yeah, I mean, I think the whole thing is a shit show, and it's potentially uh, worse than it has been previously. But I, I think that, you know, we're seeing more of the same when it comes to politics. Politics is a dirty game where uh, the people who play the game tend not to be too hung up on, uh, you know, doing what it takes to win because you're playing for power. Is, this is like the ultimate uh, form of, of money, right? Is actual power over uh, not just money, but you know all of the resources of a nation. And so the difference, I think, is that now with the information age, it's harder to keep things secret. And so we're, we're just being bombarded with more of the shenanigans that are going on. We're also seeing the results of you know what the information age enables which is massive disinformation campaigns and um, really being able to sway people's sentiments in a way that wasn't really possible before i mean the age of you know broadcast media certainly changed the ability and the speed at which politicians could sway public sentiment and now with the internet and social media, it's just, you know, kicking it up into hyperdrive. So it's more of the same, but uh, just overload such to the point that I think people who get sucked into it 
are potentially, you know, wasting a lot of their lives just worrying about this stuff. And, you know, I, I kind of watch it from the sidelines. It's impossible not to hear anything about the you know, po- political uh, situation of what's going on. But when I sit down and try to think about, well, would I prefer to live under a Republican or a Democrat controlled, you know, president uh, or other body of government um you know for me they they both have their own unique downsides and so it it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense for me to worry about which which particular downside i'm going to have to deal with because eventually i'm going to have to deal with something so it's uh it's crazy and i think that the most productive thing that people can do is to not worry about it too much because it's mostly outside of your control now we could try to institute better systems. You know, one of the the problems with voting, and I think one of the reasons why a lot of people don't trust it is because when you cast that vote, whether you're putting it in the mail or touching a screen on a, a electronic machine, you don't really know what happens to it after that. You know, you never get any sort of follow-up or feedback that ensures that an audit happened, that your vote was actually counted towards something. So, you know, these type of strong auditing systems that blockchain type data structures can enable would certainly provide some better transparency for that. But we'd need to build a whole lot of infrastructure around it uh, certainly not going to happen for this election cycle. Maybe in a few election cycles, the government or at least the, the private sector will have caught up to the possibilities of what blockchain uh, style databases can actually uh, ensure for people. I don't see a whole lot changing anytime in the near term, even even when it comes to thinking more optimistically about that stuff, I, I have to assume that a lot of the incumbent politicians would probably push back on it because they might perceive better auditing of votes to actually be against their interests. And I mean, that's that's why we see things like gerrymandering. That's why we see things like political battles over which ballots get to be thrown out for whatever stupid reasons. And um, you know, the, the whole process is corrupt because everyone is just vying to do uh, what is in their best self-interest to gain as much power as possible. I, I'm just assuming here when when I ask that question that we think that blockchain tech, because, you know, hammers and nails, you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Do you really think that blockchain tech could help create a more trusted system of voting and governance if implemented properly? Well, that's the key word, if implemented properly. And so I, I certainly believe <laughs> that it could, but I'm highly suspicious that you could get a... Um, a neutral body or a you know, sufficiently bipartisan body of people together to build it in a way that I would consider uh, verifiable and trustworthy. And so, you know, any such system I would say would need to be built in the same way that public permissionless networks are built, where it's all done in the open. Everyone can audit the source code. Everyone can view, you know, the entire public database of the votes. Like the, there can't be any, uh, potential exploits uh, where you know shenanigans could occur uh, because there's you know some level of uh, lack of transparency in, in 
in any part of the whole process. So that's why I'm pessimistic about it. You know, obviously optimistic about the technology and its capabilities, but still pessimistic about the humans that would be tasked with building it and their own uh, incentives. Is there any solution to that, uh, that pessimism then, then the human aspect? Uh, I mean, look, the, the reason that I think Bitcoin worked is because this is, um, this is a concept that transcends borders and nation states. And so you can have people in from completely different cultures who live in completely different environments, who are all sharing the common goal of building, you know, optimal form of money. But when you start to try to build a project that is limited to you know, a certain locality, a certain jurisdiction, then politics inevitably comes into play and becomes a lot harder to extricate yourself from all of the complexities that come with that. Right on, man. Well, thank you for that. And Jameson, I want to say thank you very much for your time today and for helping me summarize my last two and a half months of crypto news. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Decrypt Daily. Tomorrow, Bitcoin, gold, or silver? Can Bitcoin unseat, take the place of our precious metals? That's the question I want to get to. And for that, I invited on David Morgan, author of The Silver Manifesto, of which I have three copies to give away after tomorrow's show. And I'll tell you how to do that. I'll see you tomorrow. Happy hodling. <laughs>